Hi, welcome to another episode of the Handful of Leaves podcast, where we bring you practical Buddhist wisdom for a happier life. Is ignorance bliss? You know, in the process of wanting to be a good person or being taught to be a good person, we learn how to identify right from wrong. And we are also reminded of moral conducts and standards and thus become increasingly cautious of our own actions, sometimes fearing the consequences or we'll feel ashamed if we were to fall short. So wouldn't it actually be better if we remained ignorant? We'll be happier, right? This episode, we will talk about how the fear of wrongdoing and shame can actually lead us to peace. I know it sounds paradoxical, which is why we have our guest today, Sister Mian, and also my co-host to talk about this, because we know fear and shame, they are very unpleasant feelings. So how is it possible that it can result in peace? And is it really true that these mental qualities can pave the way to enlightenment? A lot of big questions, and this episode is going to be very educational. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Hi, good to see you, Sister Mian. I'm joined with Cheryl to chat with you today. Thanks for inviting me, Kaising and Cheryl, to join you in this wonderful series of podcasts with interesting topic to share with your listeners. So I'm actually very happy and excited to have the chat with you today. Yeah, definitely. Today's subject is quite interesting because we're going to talk about fear and shame. And there is this term in the Buddhist scripture, which is Hiri Otapa. We're going to unpack a lot of that to see where does these two words fit into our life? Because I think in a religious context, we sometimes feel like, oh, I'm not a good enough Buddhist. I did something wrong. Then there's the sense of shame and guilt. But it can get to a point where it's not so beneficial. And I Personally, in the past, have a lot of misconceptions about it. Just for our listeners, a brief background about Sister Mian, who's on this podcast with us today. She's a clinical psychologist, more than 27 years, helping individuals, couples, families to teach them on how to be a better person, either in a form of leadership or in a form of managing crisis, as well as emotion. She also does psychotherapy. I do want to start off this episode with a first question. You know, in our modern world, there are a lot of distractions and vices. I would say that a lot of people would agree that it's quite challenging to be a good person because sometimes people shout at you, they do certain nasty things and the tendency is, oh, I want to fight back or I want to hurt another person. So how do we actually not be triggered by all these temptations or these responses and end up hurting others? How does Hiri Otapa come into the picture, this sense of fear and shame? Like you say, we are not doing justice to our topic itself, especially these two very important mental qualities in our short podcast today. So I'll try my best to unpack as much as I can. It is a difficult practice. Today, I'm speaking more as a Buddhist practitioner rather than a professional psychologist. From the Buddhist perspective, I myself personally find that in our Buddhist teaching, Hiri and Otapa, these are the twin mental qualities that are present in all of us. And these mental qualities, they are associated with skillful action. At times, they are referred to as the two superheroes that protect the world or the guardians of the world. If you Google Hiri and Otapa, you'll see all these words popping up. These are very important mental qualities. It actually 
help us to make right choices in life. How do we act? How do we speak? How do we think? Hopefully in a helpful, healthy and skillful way for us to uphold ourselves as a human being, especially our moral conduct. And of course, in Buddhist practice, the importance of keeping the precepts. So these two mental qualities are huge. I'm not sure whether you would like me to delve into the definition. Because sometimes the definition itself can cause a lot of misunderstanding too. I see Cheryl nodding her head. We would agree that it's good to maybe just define what exactly is Hiri and what is Otapa in short, and then we can slowly unpack and clear some of the wrong views or misconceptions. Hiri refers to the inner conscience refraining us from doing deeds that would jeopardize our self-respect, honor, and dignity as a human being. In a way, it's an inner ability to see unwholesomeness arising as shameful or wrong. Yeah, this is where different terminology has been used to translate the Pali term Hiri. We have moral shame as one of the main ones. But I think the English translation moral shame is a bit tricky. I really like the ability to see unwholesomeness as shameful. Our awareness of the value of human being. Otapa, on the other hand, referred to the healthy fear of wrongdoings. I don't want to do this unwholesome action because by doing this, I'm going to bring harm to myself and others. That means the ability to actually reflect on consequences. As human beings, we do have responsibility and awareness of our action, karma, and so forth. But a lot of the English words that describe Otapa, they use the word moral dread or moral fear. I prefer to just use Hiri and Otapa, having a clearer understanding of the actual definition. But again, it can cause a lot of misunderstanding from the English term itself. Yeah, yeah. I think the words fear and shame are very intense words. It elicits a very negative reaction. Now, day to day, we're trying to avoid <laughs> fear and shame. I really like how you rephrase it. The ability to see unwholesomeness as shameful. It really helps us to reflect on the actions and behaviors that are actually very dirty in nature. That's why it's shameful. Rather than us having that shame that perhaps comes from wrong conditioning. I would like to share an example to illustrate Hiri Otapa. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You mentioned that it's something that we innately have Hiri, a sense of shame or conscience. We know what exactly is wrong or right. So there was one day, my mom, when she was fetching my niece from preschool, she's around four years old. She's a little bit out of character, very unusually quiet. And then my mom kind of noticed that something is amiss. And then she found out that my niece has taken from their preschool a Lego. And then she put it in her arms. We kind of know that she's not supposed to do it. But she also doesn't want to tell. So there's a little bit of like, okay, what if I get found out, you know? Like, will my mom score her? Will her mother score her? And what's the consequences? Which kind of led her to also be not so vocal about what is wrong. She probably have taken it by accident and then only found out about it afterwards. So I thought that's particularly interesting because at such a young age, she already know that taking things that is not hers, is not so right. 
So would that be an example of you? In a way, I think your niece has gone into another experience. The Pali word that I can recall is kukucha. It is actually the guilt and remorse happening. I think this is, again, very, very natural. A lot of us have this frequent misunderstanding. We get a hiri otapa quite mixed up with kukucha, remorse. So actually, kukucha is the feeling that arises after the bad action has been committed. So your knees have taken the Lego. <laughs> it's actually committed already. That's why it is already kukucha. Where else? Hiri and Otapa is actually the conflict in our mind and the feeling that arises before the bad action happened. So they are mm. actually protective factors. Hopefully they are here to protect our mind from moral defilement or immoral action. Thank you for bringing this example up. That's why a lot of times the classes on Hiri or Tapa, we have to discuss about Bukucha. <laughs> it comes together in that sense. It's kind of like the cartoon, you know, they have the angel and devil. <laughs> of, <right>? yes. Yes, <laughs> so yes. it, it is before to prevent us from mm. even taking the Lego. But then yeah. after you have already committed, then that's where the remorse comes yeah. in. And okay. the guilt comes in. That's interesting. Could you give us some examples of real-life situation mm. of Hiri and Otapa? Okay, actually, all of us, in a way, innately have Hiri and Otapa in us. But it is still important for us to develop or practice it. For this, I actually want to bring us back to a very important reference from Ashin Udagosa, 5th century Indian Theravada Buddhist commentator, translator, and philosopher. So Ashin Buddha Gosa has actually highlighted eight factors that can help us to facilitate or cultivate Hirin and Otapa. Hopefully we have these eight factors to guide us further. First, remember, we are a person of good birth. Birth is rare in our Buddhist practice. So remember that it is not worthy of a person with good birth to do unwholesome action. Remember our rare birth as a human being. Number two, this unwholesome action are not worthy of a matured person like me. Hopefully, our maturity from our practice will also prompt us to recall that. Third, this unwholesome action are just unacceptable. I am a strong and courageous person. I have been practicing all our Buddhist practices. Therefore, I should not do this. Fourth, this unwholesome action are usually committed by those who are unwise. Hopefully, I have wisdom from all my Buddhist practices to guide me. Fifth, I am a Buddhist practitioner. So I would reflect on our Buddhist doctrine, which always teach us on wholesomeness. Reflect on the dignity of the Buddha teacher, who has given us the Buddha Dharma as the path, especially our Noble Eightfold Path. So let me keep to this. My Buddhist practice is my inheritance in this present life. So I would like to honor this for myself and also for the other people in my life because if I do something unwholesome, I'm going to hurt them. So he described these eight beautiful factors that can help us to practice hearing if we can remember. Just go back to the basics, Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path, you'll be guided in what Ashin has actually mentioned. He says there's another four factors. Clear understanding of the consequences would totally stop us from committing unwholesomeness. 
he says this, we will be afraid of doing something that we're going to regret later. If we know this unwholesomeness is going to be criticized, that we're going to be punished in the present life or the future life. Yeah. Very related to our core Buddhist practice. I always love contemplating and reminding myself of maintaining Hiri and Otapa in myself. That's how we can practice to cultivate Hiri and Otapa. I know it's a long explanation, but we will share with our listener all the important links. It's good that you actually brought up the context of the different line of thoughts, because then these are signposts on the kind of narrative that goes in our head. Then we will recognize, oh, this is actually trying to guard my morality so that I would have no regret in the future. In fact, I would share another anecdotal experience to kind of make this a little bit more relatable. I would say, especially the Dhamma practice, because we have the five precepts. So no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicant, right? The precept itself has always been at the back of my head and has actually allowed me to avoid troubles or dangers. Particularly when it comes to lying, this one is quite difficult, I would say, because white life is also involved. And sometimes you not saying anything, mm -hmm. hiding the truth, if you're strict about it, it's also considered lying. Right? So yes. that was actually a very interesting instance at work. I was in a moral dilemma. Our team has actually accidentally circulated a confidential piece of information from client A to client B. And this was by accident. So the moment when we found out, it was a moral dilemma because if we don't tell, then the client won't know that we have made this mistake. But if we do tell, our client might feel that, hey, why don't we kind of guide their confidential information safely? There might be trust that is lost. But then there's also the other side, which is what if we don't tell? And eventually our client were to find out and we knew that we should have told. So there yeah. was kind of like a little bit of ding dong. And then I kind of couldn't sleep as well. In the end, we made the difficult decision, which is to own up to our mistake because it is our responsibility. And I think the whole concern is about, okay, will we destroy the trust? But the very fact that we are hiding the truth, there's no transparency, there's no trust, right? So we have to bear our consequences. Our client actually appreciated it. What we thought would be quite a big hoo-ha didn't unfold in the manner that we expect. We expect our clients to actually scold us. So right. what happened was our client was very thankful and say, okay, it was by mistake. Can you let us know who are the relevant parties? And also let me check with my team was part of legals and comms mm. to see what can be done. And then for us, of course, our offer is, okay, whatever corrective actions you want us mm. to take, we will go ahead and take it. But it was such a big load off all of our chairs because the very fact that we are not hiding anything, to me, it's about keeping the precept of honesty as well as being truthful. Also, from a leadership standpoint, mm -hmm. it does set some form of tone, right? Like, yes. how do you own up to your mistake and say that it's okay we make mistakes, be responsible for our actions. There's so much more respect from there rather than doing it otherwise. Wow. <laughs> I'm so proud, you know, of what has transpired between you, your team, and the other team. And this is the amazing part, you know, because we human beings actually 
have conscience. We have the ability to recognize mistake and we know that if we do not resolve it, it's going to be sticky. And it's very interesting that we can't go against natural emotions. In the psychology of emotions in Buddhism, there are four sets of basic challenging emotions that none of us can escape. The example that you give is guilt and the shame. The four challenging emotions are anger and hatred, fear and anxiety, grief or sorrow, guilt or shame. It will arise. We cannot run away from it. And of course, the more we are able to reflect and practice Hiri Otapa, hopefully it will prevent occurrence of the four sets of challenging emotions. And your example is right on the dot on that. Instead of anger or hatred from your client, you know, they actually have positive emotion. They were appreciative of your honesty. So you see, we are always very stuck on the negativity. But we forgot that there's always the other positive part of emotions and actions, of course. I'm so happy to hear that situation actually resolves. I cannot imagine that stress that you guys were having due to that. I was quite stressful, like, will we lose a client because of that? You know, our reputation will be tarnished and everything turned out to be all right. And I think it was for the better. I thought whatever you mentioned was so true. Fear and shame connotation is usually very negative, very intense. <laughs> Ajahn Jarasaro clarified to say it's actually wise shame and wise fear. When you use it skillfully, it actually helps you to reduce the emotions that you talk about. Anxiety, restlessness, and it helps us be more peaceful. <laughs> Definitely. That's why Hiri and Otapa are called the two superheroes or the protectors of the world. We need this as a human being in our world. It's so scary. There are a lot of bad deeds, evilness because of the lack of Hiri and Otapa. If we didn't have Hiri and Otapa to protect us, we have to then deal with Pukucha. It's when the bad action has been committed, but we need to deal with the guilt, the remorse, the shame. I got a question that could be quite obvious. So what would be considered a good deed or a bad deed? So for example, in Kaisin's mm. case, it's obvious following the five precepts, that's mm. examples of maintaining morality, maintaining goodness. But a lot of times, what we think is bad is not really bad. For example, mm. premarital sex. Some mm. people would think it's very bad. But if you die for mm. little bit people, it's because society says so or your parents say so. So it's very subjective to a certain extent. How do we know what is truly considered a good deed? Ah, that's very tricky. To me, not good deeds, that any deeds that does not fall under our practice of five precepts. It's actually very deep itself. So that will definitely always guide us to perform good deeds and to abstain from bad deeds. Another Buddhist practice will be the Noble Eightfold Path. To practice the Noble Eightfold Path itself is not easy. Having the right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That itself will take us many lives to practice this. Based on what you have actually mentioned, that example is very frequently asked by people. So is premarital sex a sexual misconduct? Breaking the third precept? So I would say that it all depends on the two person involved in that act. The element that you touch on, the cultural aspect or the religious aspect, is tricky. 
some religious rules is no premarital sex. So then they will view that as very negative. But I think our third precept, yeah, to abstain from sexual misconduct, it has to do with these two individuals. Are they truly clear and respectful of each other when they are in that sexual relationship? Are they both willing? It's very tricky on the frame of mind of that two person. If there is clarity on both sides, then it's a mutual relationship. If one person is hesitant or not comfortable and so forth, then of course that act itself is a misconduct. Right or wrong, the mind always wants to judge. It's so tricky. If we want to go deeper into the perception that arises in us in making that judgment itself, what are many more layers behind it yeah, that make us arrive at the right or the wrong? It's much more worthwhile to go back to actually investigate the processes rather looking at what is right or what is wrong. It's so subjective. But of course, living in a society, there are rules set by the country, the government. Of course, those is hard to challenge. But in terms of moral or social rules, that becomes very t- tricky. My suggestion is if we are practicing Buddhists, always have that mindfulness to bring us back to investigate the processes that's happening internally. Learn from that processes itself. So I'm not sure whether I answer you, Cheryl. You have to remind us that it's important to understand what's really going on internally because you cannot lie to yourself to a certain extent. And I think it's also important to understand the purpose behind even keeping the precepts or discerning what's right and wrong. What I find beautiful about the Buddhist teaching is everything should lead us to peace. So if we have this mental restlessness and agitation by saying, oh, but it's a gray area, is it right, is it wrong, Mm. and caught up with this endless debate, then it doesn't actually help us free ourselves from suffering. There's this term called sila bataparamasa, clinging to rules and rituals, or even clinging on to our views. And it's a very subtle part of practice because sometimes we like to follow rules, especially a very Asian context, right? Like, oh, this means this, (laughs) B means B, C means C. But the world isn't so black and white. And I think precepts is meant for us to find that peace and also live harmoniously with the society around us, which is why in the discourses, a lot of times actually the Buddha did mention to abide by the law of the nation to not cause a disruption. As practitioners, our own responsibility to also say, okay, if I were to do this, yes, it's a little bit gray. Once I do this deed, will I then have regret? Me, I found that to be very helpful. If it doesn't bring peace, then perhaps I won't venture into that path. Somehow, there is this extreme category where some people have that deep ignorance about the world, about being human, they will not be able to even have the realization, the reflection or the awareness of wholesomeness, unwholesomeness in the first place. That will be the very hard evil, really hardcore bad deeds and so forth. But to me, that's a very small percentage. But the bottom line is the higher percentage of all of us have this basic ability to know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. A lot of times, because we are challenged by our greed, we want, never mind. Lah. So I think it's a lot more on that. In our Buddhist practice, we really understand our greed, hatred, and delusion is 
always with us. How do we deal with that? For me, the Noble Eightfold Path has really unfolded for us. The answer, the cultivation of the mind, the mental development, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the hardest part for a lot of Buddhists, the meditative practice and effort. It's only with that do we actually train our mind every moment so that hopefully we do have this calmness, clarity in us that we can carry to face the world with a lot of vices and evilness and so forth. We can't avoid that. But hopefully with this cultivation, no matter how ugly it is out there, hopefully we can maintain that inner freedom and peace, which to me is the main Buddhist teaching or Buddhist practice. If you don't practice right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, you're not able to cultivate Hiri and Uttapa. No way. I think Kiri and Uttapa also helps to protect our long-term happiness. For example, the fifth precept, to mm. not intoxicate. But sometimes life is very hard. We just want to numb yourself by intoxicating. Mm. The temptation, fighting greed, uh, is very challenging right? for all of us in this materialistic world, right? Yeah, I do see how mindfulness and concentration especially can help us to have that clarity of mind to even tap into our own inner wisdom because with many things happening around us, it's very easy to be swayed. Uh, like if we hang out with the wrong company, then we would yeah. think that it's okay to indulge, but it doesn't necessarily lead to our long-term welfare. Yeah, so also very important to hang out with wise friends in order yeah. to kind of help us stay on the path to yeah. recalibrate. And most importantly, we have to be truthful to ourselves. Since today we're talking about hearing or tapa, I would like to highlight that a lot of our Buddhist core teachings are all interconnected. But hearing mm -hmm. and otapa, it is placed under the treasure dana sutta. It's two out of the seven noble treasures. So maybe let me just share with the listener, what are the seven noble treasures? We will give the link to the audience. So the first category is actually moral training. Under the moral training, there are four treasures, yeah, four practices. The treasure of faith, sadda. Start with sadda, our faith towards dharma. Second one is the treasure of moral virtue, followed by the treasure of Hiri, moral shame, and the treasure of Otapa, moral fear. So this four is grouped under moral training. And with this comes in the next category, the meditation training. Here they have two treasures for us to practice. The treasure of learning. And I think it's very deep. The next one is the treasure of charity or generosity. It's very interesting that this sutta, they place it under meditation training. The last one, the number seven, is actually the wisdom training. And this is the treasure of wisdom. Manya, see how important is that hearing of Tapa is within this seven that Buddha has actually taught all of us. Hold this as treasures in your life as human being. It's very, very near, interconnected back to our noble evil path. So it's all mm -hmm. interconnected. The moral training is going to be connected to our wisdom training and uh, it's going to be connected to our samadhi training, the mental cultivation training. Beautiful path is also three categories, right? It's similar with the seven treasure. But the one I really like is the first treasure, you know, sadda, faith. We should ask ourselves, you know, how deep is our faith? 
towards the Buddha Dhamma. So how deeply or strongly we understand the Four Noble Truths, the Three Defilements, Noble Eightfold Path, and of course, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the mental cultivation, the meditative practice. All this core itself takes many lives to practice, but to go back to that again and again. Yeah, and I think this is so complementary to how they position the Hiri and Otapa. Very systematic. Huh? Our Buddha, our Buddhist suttas are very systematic. It's very interesting how they categorize it. But if you actually are able to look at the matching of the categories, then you find that the practice are actually very flowing. Mm. Like these seven treasures. To me, it's so flowing. It's a noble evil path. Thank you for sharing. I have a curious question. You mentioned learning and Charity is under the meditation mm. training. Can you mm. elaborate more on that? Okay. Uh, disclaimer, I may not understand the Treasure Dana Sutta well. So please, uh, listeners, forgive me <laughs> if I'm not clear or misquoting, but based on my reading and my understanding, why the treasure of learning and the treasure of charity is under meditation training. I think learning is very clear because in meditation training, the learning of the mind system especially. If you do not have this ability, passion to actually want to learn, then meditation training will become very difficult. So the attitude in learning is very important for meditation training. Charity is very interesting. If we actually hold this treasure of charity in our life, which means that we are a generous person, a giving person, and also know how to receive at the same time. We are a very balanced person. This balance is also very important in our meditation practice. If we always have that greed and all that stinginess and that holding back, which is direct opposite of the treasure of charity, you can imagine the state of your mind. Very constricted, right? Versus generosity, that openness in your practice, which is definitely very important for the meditation training, the quality of the mind. So the practice of generosity itself, you know, it's just not like, you know, donate, donate, donate. It's a very meaningful and detailed process of what's going through your mind, right? That readiness, that openness, that happiness in giving. Sometimes uh, we give, but it comes with ayah. I shouldn't have given so much. Conscious. When you go into the processes, corrupted yeah. already, right? <laughs> Haven't really let go. <laughs> yeah. And renounced. Yeah. Actually, speaking of meditation, just want to circle back and tie it to Hiri Ochapa. I do know some people might say, hey, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this Dhamma practice because then it kind of makes me feel very uptight. Like in the past, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? I don't know all these five precepts. I don't meditate. You know, I can still enjoy life in a different way and fleeting happiness. That's just part of life. So they kind of restrict themselves from entering the Dhamma practice in a too deep manner. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like there's a need to recalibrate the view in order to serve them while they're still practicing without, I don't know, compromising their happiness? That's a very tough question, Kai Sing. I think I'm going to approach it this way. If that individual truly is happy, peaceful, blissful with whatever they are practicing or living with, it is fine. But if it's ignorant bliss or more of a denial kind of situation, no, la, I don't want to practice five precepts. You know, it's very restricting and things like that. If it's more towards that, they will have to deal 
with a lot of those challenging emotions that is going to arise. A lot of times people have to discover the hard way after they encounter the difficulties. Then only they will actually appreciate you know, what Buddha has taught us. If as we are sharing or talking, some people say, Ayan, all this is not going to be helpful for me. My approach is always, yeah, it's okay. As long as you are actually doing fine, you're okay. But then when they encounter challenges, if they come to us, that's where yeah, hopefully we have the skillfulness to impart our Buddhist practices of teaching to them subtly. You know, that's where we are not going to talk about hearing or tapa. Because I think it's already kukucha a lot of times. But we're going to help them to look at that emotion of guilt, remorse, shame. What are you going to do with it? What can you do with it? And whether our Buddhist practices then can help them to deal with it. So that's an easy way to convince them to practice. Yeah, Nobody's going to go for meditation retreat if they are doing fine, I tell you. But really, you know, people who really encounter problems and then they meet people that can share with them the Dharma in the right condition, right timing, then they will hopefully attempt and appreciate it. And there are also people who go into all our Buddhist practices, but they will still have a lot of hindrances. In meditation practice, the five hindrances itself is great. You can imagine it is a lifelong learning to even face all these hindrances. So I would say that if people are in denial, we continue to be a good person, a good friend or a good colleague to be there to support them when they need that. That's where our generosity in helping will be helpful at that point. Thanks for that. I think that's very wise and it also allows people to navigate based on their own capacity and we don't become like a precept or dhamma police because it can then be another situation where we feel that we are more superior and people are more inferior yeah. and they should do things a certain way, which is not helpful yeah. for our practice as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of inner search and inner calibration that we have to do. This very nicely wraps up our session in a nice tone. So today we have talked about quite a lot of things, starting with what exactly is Hiryu Otapa and how it's commonly misunderstood as Kukucha. So the first one is having wise fear and shame before we commit a wrong date. So that's going to protect us from even going down the wrong path or a path that we might end up feeling guilt and feeling remorseful, which is Kukucha. And then you also shared about the importance of keeping precept and really there's no real right and wrong. We have to understand our thought processes. It's really about the interaction between people, right? When we have the precept, whether it's between you and your partner or you and society. You um, and yourself. Yes, definitely. So it's all intertwined and we ultimately have to see how peaceful we are when we are embodying all these qualities or trying to be an upright person. Also, you talked about the noble treasures, moral training, meditation training, as well as wisdom training. We're going to put resources in the show notes for our listeners who want to find out more about each of these treasures. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's about being truthful and honest innately we already know what is beneficial we just need that mental clarity and stillness to tap into our inner wisdom sometimes be the support to our friends around us without forcing and sometimes also lean on others to guide us on the right path so thank you very much sister mian any last advice for our listeners before we say goodbye i would say maybe start with the 
treasure of faith and really maintain the treasure of learning. If I would pick two out of the seven, I'd like to thank Kaising and Cheryl for inviting me to share this difficult topic. I hope we are able to shed some light through all our definition and dialogue and so forth. Nevertheless, I wish everyone a fruitful path in our cultivation. I definitely place mental cultivation, meditation as the path that hopefully all of us will continue to stay on. So naturally, thank you to both of you for having this session with me. And we'd like to thank all the listeners, especially when they click on our podcast and listen to us. So we thank them for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Sister Mian. Thanks for tuning in till the end. That's a very insightful sharing. And if you'd like to look at some more resources about the topic, you can go to our transcript or show notes. We have placed some links there. And also, if you've benefited from this podcast, it would really help us if you can give us a five-star review and share it with a friend. And till the next episode, may you stay happy and wise.